Hey listeners, Aziz here. Mo won't be joining us this episode. He got a little busy with founder stuff. A little while ago, Mo and I decided to introduce an interview format to the Venture Bros podcast. So as many of you know, uh, I'm an investor with 308 Ventures and Mo is a co-founder at Abstract. Um, and you know, we wanted our listeners to hear from the founders and investors that we have the privilege of working with and around on a daily basis. So while we intend for this to kind of start as interviews with people in our immediate circles, as time goes on, we'll be asking more and more people from the tech industry to join us and share their story. And we may be asking for your opinions on who to interview next on our, on our uh, podcast. Uh, probably going to run a Twitter poll or something. But um, so this, this interview, our very first, this is going to be with a friend of mine, uh, goes by the name of Brandon Drew of SaaS Growth Ventures. Um, SaaS Growth Ventures is a San Francisco-based venture fund with over 20 years of combined experience growing and managing seed and Series A B2B SaaS companies. The team is composed of industry experts that leverage operational expertise in building repeatable and scalable revenue streams. Um, Brandon is an investor and advisor to uh, a lot of startups, including Songclip, Content Map, Rupairs, Connected Analytics, and others. He's probably most well-known for being an entrepreneur-in-residence in EIR at uh, 500 Startups San Francisco. He also founded a number of companies he'll tell you all about in the interview. So enjoy. Brandon. How's it going? Good, man. How you been? I've been good, man. Been good. Finally got some rain here in California, so that's uh, pretty exciting. So we don't have to worry about the fires. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, everything's going well. Tahoe refilled, right? I heard that. Uh, technically speaking, it got back to the natural rim is what they say, but uh, where it should be at is about six feet above natural rim uh, for it not to be in drought season. But, uh, you know, we'll take the the, the good that we have uh, and hope for uh, a little bit more rain uh, later in the season. But I heard uh, Squaw is uh, opening up uh, uh, this weekend, so that's that's probably, uh, you know, the earliest I've ever seen uh, Squaw open. Or I, I'm sorry, they are not calling it Squaw anymore. They're calling it Palisades. Uh, due to uh, terminology squaw, so Palisades is opening up um, in Tahoe, and uh, yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's good, good start to the season so far. But let's hope that it holds. Sweet. So just to give just to give the audience some background, like you and I met because uh, you were at one point a mentor in one of the startups that I had uh, invested in yeah. in the past. Yep. Um, yeah. So I mean, the good thing about my job is just getting to um, getting to meet people in VC with a lot of kind mm -hmm. of weird backgrounds as to how they got into the business. I mean, you know that 10 <laughs> years ago, if you wanted to break into VC, you know, you were either your dad was a senator or yeah. you had a former startup and exited successfully and then you switched right. to the investor side. Or you were part of the TMT pool, the tech media, tech, uh, the tech media and telecom pool at some you know management consulting firm or investment bank and you got cherry picked by a VC to be their associate. <laughs> but now, now, like the, the Genesis story is just so diverse, so crazy, and yeah. people working yeah. from anywhere and everywhere could just wind up in VC. Um, right. You had a pretty unique story when we first discussed it a couple years ago. Yeah. So yeah. let's go a step. Yeah, let's go a step further. How did you even get into startups in the first place? Yeah. So I think I've always had, uh, you know, the build mentality and break mentality. I always like to, I think it goes back to the education of, at, at my university. Um, so I went to Cal Poly or it's a polytechnic university in central California. If people aren't familiar with it. And I luckily fell into a, a major because it was the only major in the business school that was at the time, not as impacted as the rest of the majors, but it fit me. I, I just luck of the draw. I got really lucky that it was the best one for me. And it was a cross between engineering and uh, business. Uh, it's called uh, industrial technology. And so we, you know, the whole premise behind it is you get to, you know, have a very entrepreneurial mindset. And so kind of coming out of the university, I, I knew that I loved building stuff, um, lack of better words. I mean, to put it in perspective, uh, uh, when, when you graduate, you have to do a senior project at Cal Poly. Uh, in order to graduate. And most people in my major were trying to tee up for their jobs. Uh, like they're doing stuff for Boeing, they're doing stuff for, you know, these large corporates. Um, one poor girl uh, did one for Kellogg's and she uh, had a measure because uh, there was a packaging minor to the, and we can get into the packaging minor at a later time, uh, but pretty unique minor. Uh, and she uh, 
did one for Kellogg's where they literally, she was so excited and kind of bragging about it until she found out what they assigned her to. And she literally had to put a pallet of cornflakes on a shake table and measure the breakage of cornflakes to mimic uh, uh, a truck drive uh, load. So people were doing all these weird stuff. And for me, I was like, I, I just can't do that. It's way too corporate for me, a little bit anti the, the man. Uh, so I did my own, I built my own product. Uh, I came up with an idea uh, and my professor thought I was crazy as well as all the other people in my class until I actually built the prototype. Um, and I built the world's first ever backpack karaoke machine. And uh, we called it uh, the Pakioki. Um, and it was brilliant. <laughs> How are you literally, not a billionaire? <laughs> exactly. Uh, literally, it was like a tape deck play. I mean, because we're going back to 2000, right? Um, so like MP3 players and disk drives were barely even uh, coming out um, way before the iPod. Uh, and I built one uh, and it was, it was brilliant. So that's where I got like, you know, I've always had that, uh, that type of, uh, you know, mentality of just, I love, I love to be creative and build stuff, uh, tinkering, you know, did a lot with my dad when I was growing up. Um, the best part about that entire story was, is that uh, at the time I was actually renting from the president of the university, President Baker. Um, and I lived with his son, so kind of risky, especially when you're in your senior year of college to be renting from yeah. the president. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. But he like his, his wife loved me. I got invited to all the parties, and uh, you know she would call me over and have me tell crazy stories of what we did last weekend to all of her friends, and they, they thought it was a hoot. Uh, but they ended up coming to my graduation party, um, and at the time I was really good. For, uh, I was really good friends, uh, and still even through uh, my uh, startup life. Uh, the founder of Jamba Juice, Kirk Perone, he was a really big mentor of mine. So I had some pretty interesting people at Cal Poly because, you know, they Jamba Juice uh, started uh, uh, down in San Luis Obispo. And uh, uh, so it was it was good. They, and so, like, I guess, boiling down, President Baker shows up to the party and he has the chancellor's California State University system with him as well. And all of a sudden, my buddies just wanted to roast me. They're like, tell them what you did for your senior project. And I was like, ah, oh, come on, guys. Like, what are you doing? And I, and next thing I know, I'm like telling President Baker uh, what I'm doing. And uh, he was like, I love this. And all my friends were like, what is happening? And I, he was so excited about it because he has an engineering background. I bring it outside. And sure enough, the batteries die on it. And uh, <laughs> then uh, from that, you know, I had plugged it into, uh, I had the ability to plug it into a wall socket. And my buddies had like, literally unplugged everything in the house and wired like 400 feet or 100 feet or so of cabling to the uh, backpack karaoke machine and fires up and i have this one photo that i'll that i, I have to dig up and i'll have to uh, frame but it's me the president's wife and the chancellor's wife with them in the background singing at the top of our lungs you lost that love and feeling from top gun <laughs> so that's wow. that's how i that's how i left cal poly um, but kind of going back to your original uh, question, and, and sorry for the the dog leg there. Uh, I, I just no, love this story. <laughs> it's, it's a fun story, yeah. So, and so you know, going back to like why uh, why I do what I do and and how I got into it. Um, and one of the first, and when I was going to Cal Poly, uh, I had to you know work my way through school. I, you know, I didn't have parents helping me, and uh, I was actually uh, working as a paralegal for a bankruptcy trustee for about five years. Um, so I actually, I jokingly say I learned what not to do in finance at an early age um, by doing bankruptcy law. Um, you wow. know, we were looking at 500 cases a month for, you know, I was doing it for almost five years. But all my friends were traveling. And uh, I, my first job um, was actually overseas. I sold everything I owned and I moved to uh, Krakow, Poland. Um, I worked for a company called Adderham Software. Um, I was only out there for you know a one-year contract, um, and then they uh, fired the second-in-command and put me in his place. And I just realized that I had a, a really big knack for uh, uh, how organizations work. I think it's mainly because of the finance background. Of when I look at a balance sheet and a PNL, especially month over month uh, setup um, overlay, uh, as, a, as you want to call it. Mm -hmm. I can, I can tell kind of where the company is or where their strengths and weaknesses are because it's really the lifeblood of the organization. And then from that, I was just pretty much hooked, you know, because you can make such a big impact 
in, in such a little bit of time and the collaboration that you have with, you know, just a small banded of people, especially if it's a Motley crew, you know, the, the more Motley I, I love, you know, I love, you know, I love crazy. I always put it that way, uh, is the better. And, uh, you know, I did brief stint, you know, going into corporate world, you know, I worked at a company, uh, Siemens when I came back to the States, mm -hmm. um, after working in Poland, but I had a great, like in, the big thing was I had a great run in Poland. Um, yeah, you know, I had five x the revenue in you know eighteen month period. Started two joint ventures, one in Tokyo, one in London, uh, and helped restructure the organization because at the time uh, the tax authority was really uh, really harsh on on companies. Let's just put it that way. So we needed to secure the IP and uh, secure the uh, bank accounts uh, with with a Swiss based uh, holding company. Um, and it was just a lot of fun. Uh, and when I came back and did a you know large corporate. Uh, you know, you're just supposed to be a, uh, be a cog, you know, in the, in the bigger machine. Did you not and find that somewhat miserable when you came back? I mean, from, from having free reign to kind of control your day, um, do what you need to do, set your own OKRs, you know, set your own schedule, going back to a position where you need to have your, you know, daily activities dictated from above with no reason, but, you know, threats of being fired if you don't comply, I, I would find it ext extremely stifling. Stifling is, I would say, suffocating, to be quite honest with you. Uh, and you have to also remember, too, I came back, I was living in Poland for two years. I right. literally like, was traveling. I, I would think my record was like 14 countries in 12 months. <laughs> like, I wow. was all over the place. Yeah, and I circled the globe twice, you know, just because of, you know, uh, trade shows at the time and whatnot. Um, and then I come back to the Bay Area uh, and I'm living basically in San Francisco, traveling to travel all the way down to San Jose in traffic and then sitting in a cubicle, right? Right. And nobody's really taken any accountability for what I did at the time. Because at that time, we there was no real startups. It was all, at the time, they called it ISVs or independent software vendors. Yeah. And they didn't even call it SaaS. They called it ASP or application service providers. And so, like, it was really early on or, like, just post the dot-com bust, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think from a mental standpoint, it was, I was struggling just because, you know, you go from traveling the world and, and to your point, having free reign to, uh, you know, being stuck in a machine yeah. like that. And the, the big hardest part too, was that three months after I got hired on, they announced that they were going to sell that division off. So imagine trying to be in sales and, uh, getting, going out <laughs> getting and all over the paper, your, your competitors, which was Cisco at the time, cause we were selling PBXs yeah. is you know, they're selling the division. They don't even care about this anymore and they can't find a, a buyer. And then I think the biggest issue that I had was my boss's boss. Uh, I learned pretty big lesson. One Siemens is very Germanic in terms of hierarchy, uh, how they, um, uh, operate. And it's like most organizations, but I just felt it very, uh, but it is, it's, it's a colossal organization. And with that comes with a whole bunch of rules and hierarchy and the rest of it. And, and right. no matter how many times, uh, you know, you get the corporate spiel of, uh, you're your own boss here. You could do as you please. The reality sets in pretty quick. Like we have no autonomy. This is exactly. an organization and I am a cog in a machine, but you right. did something after that. If I recall correctly from, I mean, at this point I'm quoting a discussion we had years ago, but <laughs> after that, um, um, you did something you know, somewhat similar to what I did. So what I did was, you know, I really wanted to get back into, you know, real VC. And mm -hmm. I figured, you know, of the paths that I set out a couple of minutes ago, my only real path was to get picked out of uh, a TMT group in management consulting or investment banking in order mm -hmm. to be some VC's associate somewhere and work my way up. Yeah. Yeah. So to do that, yeah. I went into IB. And when I went into yeah. IB, I, I, you know, I pretty much, you know, you sell your soul to the devil to be an investment banker. You do ECM, DCM, that's equity and debt capital markets and financial yep. advisory and restructuring. Yep. And it's this soulless thing. Yeah. Yeah. No. And yeah, I, I pivoted off and wanted to, at the time, the whole genesis was, I realized that early on that if you're going to operate a business, doesn't matter, you know, director management level or even CEO level, you have to really understand the the financial market and, financials. And so I was, uh, at the time, uh, you know, cause I, a buddy of mine that I did triathlons with, uh, was at Merrill Lynch, uh, and Merrill Lynch was paying hundred percent for, uh, MBAs. I was going to go back and do an MBA and have a uh, company pay for it. Uh, yeah. and I got licensed up and it was, uh, 2008. 
2007, I got licensed in the fall, and then 2008 happened. Um, and I'll, I'll never remember, I'll never forget it too. Like we saw it somewhat coming, not that we knew the level of, uh, or predictability of it, but uh, we were doing, I don't know if you remember auction rate securities. Um, we uh -huh. had a number of uh, startups, uh, their payroll uh, after they raised capital and locked up in ARS. And uh, it was, uh, it was pretty tough because all of a sudden that auction market fell apart, right? Because uh, it was not a true auction and it was not fully liquid. It was backed by bonds that were just, you know, doing a spread on it. It and, just, uh, uh, it seemed slow <laughs> and then it got slower and slower and then it, it, the bottom it fell just, out. It just broke. Yeah. It's, yeah. uh, liquidity. Cause at the end of the day, what was happening, like city and these large organizations would buy up whatever would, re residual was on the auction at the end of the day yeah. and then just repost the next day. So it was actually being floated. Right. Um, and so we saw that in the summer of 2007 and then obviously 2008 hit. And then, you know, we went from what was it, 176 people in our, what we call LOS line of service. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there was like seven of us left at the end of the day. Cause they, you know, obviously Merrill Lynch got acquired by bank of America. Uh, and at that time I just saw a lot of people, uh, leaving the organization that I respected. Um, and mother Merrill was no more. Uh, so that's when I got, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I was working with a lot of startups and I met one of my first co-founders since then did, uh, you know, uh, did a whole lot of, uh, I did what five startups with three exits, although they weren't, uh, um, uh, meaningful for me. There's some money back to the company. And one of my first startups was uh, at 500 startups. They were actually, we were batch one. Um, I was the first employee that they hired uh, while they're at the batch, um, and it was great. And so that's when I've really took off with my uh, SaaS B2B kind of strategy. I think uh, if you look at it, and the way I look at it is uh, I love that business, the business model, right. um, mainly because, uh, you know, going back to my finance background, it's it's annuitized business. Um, and so it's really yeah. predictable. Uh, you don't have to worry about trends of, you know, is TikTok going to be popular for the next five years or somebody right. else going to take it out? It's a bit more predictable. Uh, exactly. It, Less yeah, out there. So, exactly. So, but can yeah. be before we delve deeper into this, can you walk us through your five businesses and your exits or, or, and or failures? Yeah. So, yeah, not a problem. Um, so one of the companies, well, my first business was I co-founded a company right out of, uh, right out of, uh, Merrill, um, I met the guy through uh, my connections at Merrill. Uh, we did, uh, it was called PS, PSD to CSS or P2C uh, for short. Um, we were auto generation or regenerative coding is what we called it uh, for Photoshop files where we can turn a Photoshop file into a live website in less than a minute uh, and or turn it into, at the time there was content management systems were really uh, coming in the full. Yeah, well, primitive, but they were coming in the fold, right? Uh, yeah. WordPress was uh, uh, the darling. Then you had Joomla uh, and Drupal, and now you have everything else underneath the sun. Um, so we did CMSs for them as well, and we were cranking. Um, and one of the biggest lessons I learned there is that uh, you know, both founders have to be 100% committed. And there's absolutely no fault to my uh, my partner, who is the brains behind everything. I was just the operator and the you know more the business guy. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, but he was, he got hired up at Facebook and, you know, I'll never forget it when Facebook went, you know, five to one, uh, one to five split, you know, he's five times the equity that he had. He was like, I, I don't need to be working this hard. I can't blame him, you know? And yeah. so but at the same time, the, the moral lesson is that, you know, you have to have everybody in. Um, and at the time too, I was doing, I had a, a lifestyle business as well. And I think this is the second lesson I learned is. You can't feather two separate operations. Uh, I had a lifestyle. I was really big into triathlons coming out of college, and uh, I uh, had a race management company where I was managing marathons, half marathons, and triathlons. And I think that was the biggest uh, distraction because you really need to put everything that you have, not just from a time standpoint, but also from a mental capacity into your operations. Right. And so when I see like founders where they're you know kind of doing the day job and doing this at night, uh, you know, it's, it's more of a hobby at that level or just getting started. The real, the real work is when you actually put everything in and you have all your eggs in that basket in terms of uh, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. And, right. and everybody says fail fast. And I, I will definitely agree with that. You don't want to waste time. 
Um, I think, you know, even looking back when I was at Siemens, uh, I knew within the first three, six months after they said that they're going to sell, I should jump ship. Um, you know, I think I wasted a little bit more time than I needed to being there for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's, I guess, the other lesson learned. And, and then from that, you know, I, I, the interesting thing that happened was after I had that startup, I had met a lot of investors because they were going to back us until we basically just said we couldn't do this anymore. And all the investors that I worked with, uh, because of my background in Poland and et cetera, uh, they started calling me up for uh, companies that they had either invested in uh, and were on the fringe of like exploding or that they had invested in and uh, were having problems and they needed uh, an adult in the room. And so that's kind of how my careers progressed. And so I went to uh, Vidcaster out of 500 startups. That's how I got, uh, I met uh, Dave McClure and Christina Sai. Uh, you know, we were batch one coming through there. Yeah. And we had a great run, uh, left that group, uh, went to another group called Taptera. Um, we had a good run there. A lot of lessons learned, um, in terms of org. Uh, that one was, I think the biggest lesson I would say without getting too into the weeds on it is having the right board as a company. Um, because yep. the board can make or break make, making decisions if they're not really in tune with the with the organization, um, and yeah, they they that had a good chance of doing really doing great things. But unfortunately, if you don't have the right team, it's all about execution. And let's just say that we were not executing, right? Um, and that was also uh, what I've learned for the Fitcaster as well as through them that uh, young companies, because they're chasing revenue versus building a product and listening to the client, uh, you get into these professional services, you know, engagements because you're starving for capital and you're just trying to keep the lights on. But in reality, it's the worst thing for you. And so, yeah, you know, this is, um, I, I've cautioned some founders against going for the low hanging fruit because yeah, you know, it puts up a pretty top line in your business, but you forget to build what will, you know, be responsible for the enduring growth of the startup. Absolutely, hundred um, percent. And you know, I could, like I said, I can point to two, if not three, companies that I that I was at that either I was trying to pull them out of that uh, professional service, you know, conundrum. Uh, I did. I, we were doing it with Vidcaster, trying to more productize it around what the people were asking for, without having to do, uh, you know, just direct one-offs. And uh, Tapterra, pretty much, uh, that's basically what uh, what happened with Tapterra. Unfortunately, um, I mean, we had backing from Salesforce, you know, Benioff, and the like. Now, um, you know, if we had, uh, if anybody had a chance, it was it was these guys. Um, but uh, so you had a great stint. You had a good run with a lot of startups, um, kind of the early 2010s, Sorry, in in the San Francisco area. So yeah. this was peak, you know, post 2008 disaster, you know, people were out of the right. trough and things were picking up again and financing was coming back and valuations were coming back. Yep. Um, you know, you ended up an entrepreneur in residence at 500. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So I felt, like I said, I've been part of the 500 family for some time First, start off with mentoring and just keeping engaged with, uh, you know, companies there and just, you know, trying to give back. Um, you know, uh, I've always had that mentality yeah. of, trying to pay it forward. Um, and as well as like, there's great opportunities there and you just have to find the right synergies yeah. and more people to work with. And so it's like kissing frogs, you know, like you're not sure, you know, which, which people you're going to, uh, uh, connect with and which ones you're not. Um, but yeah. it, you know, it definitely pays forward. And, you know, so I was a mentor there at EIR and that's actually directly ties into you. Um, because one of the companies yeah. I was uh, EIR for was one of the companies, uh, that you invested in, as you said earlier on in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And incidentally enough, that's also how I met my business partner for our venture fund, uh, Arun Ghassan. Uh, yeah. I was a mentor and advisor to one of his companies that he had uh, mm -hmm. coming out of 500. Uh, what, what struck yeah. me from him was that he was probably the smartest. He was the most intense person around data and sales that I had ever met at that time. Um, and still pretty much is. Plus, um, I mean, you, you came from maybe like the perfect background to ultimately wind up in a SaaS-focused VC. So, I mean, I remember people, a lot of people just in the last few years, especially pre-pandemic, like the last year or two, um, you know, saying that early in the 2010s, had I just put all my money in SaaS businesses, I would yeah. have had simply the best performing portfolio of anyone anywhere. Um, yeah. Now, SaaS businesses, obviously, like, you know, everything was still very focused in San Francisco. We didn't have this kind of distributed stuff. New York City wasn't as hot. Los Angeles wasn't yeah. as hot. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you were in the thick of things. And then the other thing is, 
with 500 specifically, I still remember having debates with people wondering, it's like, oh, I wonder whether this approach is actually going to work in the long term. Will the power law play out as we all expect it to play out? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I heard some people say that they were just making far too many bets for any one of them to end up, you know, meaningfully returning from the perspective of a fund. Um, mm -hmm. So for you, having been an EIR at the time where SaaS was at its peak <laughs> in San Francisco yeah. at 500 and investing in more SaaS businesses than anyone anywhere, what, what insight do you have that's just, you know, uh, what, what insight do you have that, I th that you think, you know, makes your current activities as a SaaS-focused VC special? Yeah, so I guess let's unpack that statement. So what did what did I learn and, and get from 500 in terms of their investment strategy? Is that kind of what you're what you're driving towards? Or how I mean, is it you SaaS? saw more SaaS investments at the peak of SaaS yeah. than anyone. Yeah. You've seen every fallacy like, play out and you've seen all the yeah. good ones come through. Yep, yep, exactly. And so I think it's an evolution, right? So early on at 500, it was still like uh it was still a little bit harder. It's not as it wasn't as easy as it is today uh, to start a company, right? You you didn't have AWS was the, just at the infancy of of it launching, um, and wasn't as you know strong as it is today. Google hadn't had their uh, platform up yet, um, and so you still you, you didn't have as many companies out there. And at that, that time, there wasn't as many resources out there as well. Uh, for organizations to leverage. Um, and I think it's gotten kind of a little bit more commoditized and or uh, readily available for folks. And so early on in SaaS, like if you made it to uh, 500, uh, you were pretty hardened, right? Because there, there was a limited pool and they were just picking the top, top of the top, right? And now you have a lot more organizations popping up. You have a lot more infrastructure, a lot more detailed plays and more niche um, I think what we saw back in those days was a lot more broad platform plays, and now I'm seeing a lot more niche plays uh, that you have to sort through and sift through. Um, but uh, you know, the SaaS, uh, you know, for me, like you know, going back from a high level of SaaS, like if you're starting a tech company, there's only really three ways that you can make money, right? One is through subscription, uh, or one you do like more of a Facebook or Google Play. Uh, where it's based on advertisement, right? Mm -hmm. Or you're selling, you know, uh, hard goods or services. Uh, you know, it's more of a just digital storefront for you know an existing business. Or you're, you know, the new new thing is IoT, obviously. Uh, right. But those, you know, those have to have a subscription if you want to have longevity as well. Um, so again, comes back to somewhat to SaaS. So uh, we've definitely seen cycles. Um, we we. We're in the middle of, I think, uh, a new resurgence and renaissance of SaaS because of some technologies that are evolving, uh, specifically around AI, ML, and uh, you know, blockchain technologies. And I'm not talking about token tokens or NFTs. I'm talking about the the real uh, the real technology. Um, not that those are not plays, but um, as it relates to SaaS, and I think that's going to really enterprise blockchain. Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, from a security standpoint, uh, anonymizing PII, uh, you know, and the likes, we can go definitely down a deep rabbit hole in that. But that's where it gets really exciting because I think we're just at the the beginning part. The, we're we're just getting started, basically. And um, and so we're yeah. So it's that point. You know, I think we're seeing a lot more. Uh, we're going to see a lot more exciting things uh, being being attributed. And you know, kind of going back to that cycle mentality. You know, we look back at, you know, the last five to eight years, you know, big data was all the, the big rage, right? Everybody was talking yeah. big data, big data, big data. Well, now that everybody has a big data repository or these data warehouses, now what do you do with the data? Well, now you're seeing a revolution of organizations that are uh, targeting that of, you know, applying these algos to it uh, to do really uh, you know, unique things and, and get deep insights. And you know, bridging data sets from you know disparate systems together to you know get uh, really intelligent about whatever solution that they're doing. Well, um, given what data you have, I mean, it just becomes so much easier to layer on additional revenue streams on top of the customers that you have retained with your base SaaS product. And so you see SaaS yep. starting add all these features, all these different things. Yep. One thing I'm seeing now, and I am by no means a SaaS focused investor, but one thing I'm seeing is that. Um, Again, building on the massive data that you have, enhancing your ability to sell, 
SaaS and fintech and marketplaces are starting to see the Chinese wall between them begin to collapse, and it's all kind of merging into one offering for a multifaceted platform. Correct. It's a, what I like to call renaissance because you're mixing arts, arch architecture, everything else, right? And yep. so you're mi mixing all these different disciplines together, uh, and you can come up with really, really uh, unique product offerings. But I would actually say, uh, put out there that it's not just access to data, but like if you're able to cultivate and culture your own original data sets, that's where I think the true enterprise value is is is, is retained. Um, and I think that's a very basic and logical statement, but you know, putting it out there to entrepreneurs that if they actually can capture that data and look at the value that they can create from it, uh, then that's where the true enterprise value comes from. Uh, it's not just the recurring revenue. It's you know, there's there's really unique things. It's meaningful for people that are out there in different services that you can uh, leverage that to. And that's why I think blockchain is is going to really help with that because the biggest issue is. Uh, you know, PII, right? personal identifying information, and you know you have GDPR and all this other stuff, right? Yeah. And so users are very cautious in terms of like what they're allowing corporates to use because of data breaches and whatnot. But if we're able to then anonymize this stuff, then it's gonna, uh, I think, anonymize the the data aspect, then it becomes a moot point. And we're already starting to see that with like the bigger players, right? You know, Apple went away with uh, IDFA and Google is no longer uh, tracking and they're going more towards uh, a new uh, deep technology that's around the blockchain called federated learning um, right, yeah. to solve for that. And that's, that's where, like, again, I, I get really excited about this stuff um, because now it's like it's re it's rewriting the playbook a little bit you know we're not just you know doing a content management system and it's oh great we can do a website it's okay that's great but let's do some let's do something meaningful for uh specific industries and and uh and actually change people's lives yeah so that's, that's my broad sentiment on it um i don't know if i answered your question at all because uh but it's you know i again kind of going back to uh uh SAS in general i think we're just getting started uh, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, how do you see SaaS developing in the US versus, say, you know, emerging market startups? So, I mean, the trend we've seen with a lot of other sectors is that, you know, we're kind of on iteration two, iteration three of whatever the product is in the United States. But, you know, you start looking at India, at LATAM, um, Europe or Eastern Europe specifically, you start seeing um, more of a, you know, a, a version 1.5. So the initial version or the initial um, form of the concept is starting to take on a more uh, developed sense when it first approaches the market. Um, what are you seeing in SaaS, you know, that in, in other countries that differs from what we see in the States and what we see, especially in the last six months in the States? Well, yeah, so I think it's more tied to the economic conditions of those areas, right? So um, one is that the areas and regions you just mentioned, uh, they are lagging, I guess, in terms of a mature market uh, compared to the US. I mean, that's an obvious statement, but they're catching up quite fast. And specifically some areas that you just mentioned, let's just focus in on India. So India is probably, I would say, ground zero for SaaS innovation currently. And the reason why, from my perspective, is that a lot of Western organizations had offshored uh, call centers and or services to that region um, one, because the talent was good, but also because it was economical. And so you have almost a decade, almost a decade, decade and a half of these individuals that have been invested in from a, uh, from a training perspective uh, that are now going out and building their own organizations. And so you have all these new entrepreneurs with great ideas that are now trying to uh, build these organizations. And it's, it's, it's crazy like how many, like how big SaaS is coming out of India. And I think it's mainly because uh, the background of them being a, a service center uh, for the world in some ways. Right. Um, and I think you also see that in Eastern Europe. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I was living in Poland, uh, Google at the time, I don't know if you remember this or if, if you would even have seen it, Google put up billboards all around the world. Uh, mm -hmm. They were hiring 100 people. And if you could solve this one math problem, uh, you were hired on the spot with like a crazy package. It was something ridiculous like that uh, because they were just starving for like, top talent in the world. I remember that. You had and to answer that. it in Python. Is that the one? <laughs> I, I probably, I don't remember that being a part of it, but uh, I just remember like this aspect. Uh, yeah. And uh, 
at the time, uh, I think it was something crazy, like a density of like 10 to 20% came from Southern Poland or that region. Um, and it was mainly because like, I, I forget like, well, one Krakow specifically has 11 universities there in the one in the town. It's a, it's a thought center. It's been there for a long time. Um, but also like you in that region, it being post-Soviet, they didn't have resources. So they like, I remember like work walking in the server room one time and they had a server on the side. It was summer. We didn't have air conditioning. They had a server on the side and they had a, a bowl of water on top of it. Wow. Like, what are you guys doing? They're like, well, it's a heat sink. And I'm like, that's smart. Also, it's the craziest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Well, not my entire life, but pretty crazy right. in terms of walking into a server room and seeing a bowl of water and programmers with their shirts off, which you kind of want to erase from your mind. But <laughs> what I'm trying to get to is that they're very resourceful. They know they can break stuff apart because whatever spare parts they had, they would try and make something up, make make do with it. So they really could break things apart, coding, whatnot. And and so you, you saw the, you, this epicenter there. Not only that, but you saw a lot of, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, uh, virus protection company, uh, software virus protection, because one of the first viruses came from Slovakia. And so yep. you see these these pockets and these these density areas of uh, where you know SaaS or technology uh, evolves, um, and it's more of I would say sometimes envir environmental. And then Poland got into the EU, mm -hmm. and guess what? Everybody started putting their you know European uh, service centers or tech centers in Poland. Yeah, it's actually um, interesting that you bring up the Soviet um, the Soviet history of Eastern Europe. Um, so something that uh, actually a, a Ukrainian friend of mine brought this up uh, a little while ago. Um, we were having lunch in Dubai, and uh, you know, I kind of casually asked, "It's like, why are so many like excellent engineers, you know, Ukrainian and Polish and Lithuanian?" And, yeah. and he's like, "Oh, well, you know, because for the past 20, 30 years, you know, at, at, or you know, at, in the in the last twenty to thirty years of Soviet rule." Um, the government had intentionally kind of suppressed the humanities in universities and got everyone to focus on math and science. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, it serves their political purposes more so. Right. You know, they'd yeah. rather you be an engineer than a poet. Right. Um, that, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that ethos kind of, um, you know, even after the fall of the Berlin Wall, that ethos kind of survived. And uh, it was just kind of right. drilled in everyone's mind had you grown up in that environment that, you know, if you wanted to to... If you wanted to have a decent career and make a lot of money, you had to end up in the sciences. And right. you know the the butterfly effect here is that most of Western Europe's tech ecosystem would die if they didn't have access to Eastern European talent. I would I definitely agree with that. And I would actually extend this out to, and this is total theory on my side, um, but I think that there's a direct correlation to the language structure being a uh, Slavic-based language. Uh, Polish, Ukrainian, Russian, uh, you know, not Cyrillic in terms of alphabet, but uh, Slavic base yeah. that you know, they take basic grammar all the way up until college. Like it's such a complicated language. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm just speaking based on my knowledge of Poland. Like it's they have like 16 or 17 different conjugations for a word present, you know, like formality, like the whole I, I won't even get into it because I'll butcher it. But I think that the way that people described it to me that are fluent in it, because I'm definitely not, is that it's like a lattice or a matrix. And mm -hmm. if you think about coding, I think it has a lot of similarities to coding. And so, yeah. you know, my theory is that I think also the brain, the brain is uh, a better, uh, in a better position to understand coding or at that level, mm -hmm. uh, especially high density coding, uh, where you, know, you have really high skilled uh, coders um, because their mind's already mapped in a certain way that, uh, the logic uh, can flow a little bit freer and again that's just a theory to mine of mine as well yeah. um, so the so. thing is a lot of like you know high profile um high frequency traders also tend to hail from that region and the ultimate yeah. irony is uh the soviet education system created the ultimate capitalist traders <laughs> you know because they, they study they study math and physics you know from like middle school into college and yeah. so you know computer science just kind of comes naturally to people whose minds are geared to think in, in those right. terms yeah. And uh, it turns out makes them excellent HFTs. Right. So, right. You know? Yeah, but, no, it's pretty weird. But going back to like, you know, where we see the evolution of, uh, of SAS, I think you're right. I think we go back to these epicenters of what's happened over the last couple of decades, you know, where Western countries have gone for more economical places for them to uh, provide services. 
then has now bred these organizations and these this talent uh, into doing their own stuff, yeah. um, doing their own operations, and they're coming up with great concepts. Um, and I think it's just a, 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 an evolution for these regions. And I was actually just talking with a, a, a colleague of mine, a company I just invested in, um, actually in Africa. And I'm seeing a lot of similarities uh, from that region that I saw early on in my career at, in Poland and where it's evolved to now. Mm-hmm. When I was first in Poland, I remember uh, uh, at a company, uh, Nameless and you know whatnot, the CEO brought it, he was asking me, you know, uh, help with his uh, organization and, you know, how to hire and whatnot. Uh, and I was like, you know, you got to build a better culture, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, why do I need to do that? And he brings out a stack. It was almost like a phone book. Mm-hmm. throws it on the table. He's like, you see this, Brandon? These are all people that are willing to get to knock on this door and, and get a job here. If these people don't like it, then they can get the hell out. Yeah. And I was like, that's a very short-sighted mentality because one of the things that I've realized as well from an organization is you got to your hire. Every hire that you have is a key hire. Yeah. Because the, better the, you know, the culture and the team, if you have a 10 person team that are all all stars, they can outperform a hundred person team any day of the week. Yep. Right. And the, the biggest thing that a startup has or a young organization has is opportunity costs. It's not so much the monetary costs, mm-hmm. it's opportunity because it, which directly somewhat ties into the, the, the balance sheet. Um, Cause you're wasting money if you're, uh, but the biggest thing you can't get time back. Right. Mm-hmm. And once you once you raise your first dollars, you have a ticking time bomb above your head because you either have to get your metrics and KPIs up uh, in order to uh, court that next round of funding and or you need to get cash flow positive. And uh, otherwise, you know, you have a burn that's, that's always going to catch up with you. This um, seems to so- be a uniquely um, emerging markets focused kind of HR misunderstanding of, uh, listen, I got the job and if you don't like it, you can get, you know, um, the, right. One- right. It's yeah. it, it takes on different forms in different markets, but I think it's absolutely true. And it starts changing once they realize how absolutely scarce excellent talent truly is, yeah. and uh, uh, they absolutely need to be taken care of because you know churn is real and it could kill a startup. It is, it is, and that's where I was getting to with the Polish. You know, now I see coming out of this region, you know, countless startups. Uh, you know, Polish, you know, Polish driven uh, specifically. Uh, and you know, the scarcity resources, a key talent is, is definitely a, a definitive. Uh, we saw like, you know, even you can look at back at, you know, the U S you know, remember like everybody was getting a you know job at Ma Bell, IBM, uh, Xerox here in San Jose. And, you know, as a corporate cubicle, just punch keyboards, be a cog in the machine. And then the evolution of startups where they really needed to uh, retain and, and hold talent. Uh, you know, you have a ping pong table, you have a pool table, you have, you know, sushi for lunch that's provided, uh, all these perks. Yeah. And it really changed the corporate culture because they realized one and one thing only that the key asset is the human brain. Right. And that's, right. that's, that is, the, it's not a Ford a factory anymore. And so they had a coddle to that and it's definitely changed corporate America here, uh, for the better, I believe. Yeah. Um, as well as I think you're starting to, and you're absolutely correct. It, it evolves, uh, over time that, uh, the companies either will, have to face that music that they need to treat their employees great, or yeah. they're going to lose key talent and you're just going to, you're going to suffer in another way. Um, and we're seeing the right. same thing that's happening in Africa right now, uh, as well as in India, uh, that, you know, people are basically going out and just shopping their, uh, their current pace up and they're getting hired because there's definite lack of, um, there's there's an imbalance of supply and demand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole lot of demand from organizations right now to get key talent, but it's really hard to retain them uh, unless you are, have a really good culture and ecosystem. This is apparently the number one problem. Uh, not apparently. This is the number one problem in U.S. startups right now, uh, the talent problem. Well, I think it's uh, the, the talent problem also uh, directly ties into uh economic problems as well because mm-hmm. you have this huge bloat i mean i'm i'm in uh, the bay area right uh, right francisco like <laughs> like the the prices are out, uh, astounding of how much it costs just to live here not to mention have kids or raise a family and really i've in, never heard right. hey, exactly right. uh i mean just put it in perspective you know we live in east bay um a house down the street from us sold for a million dollars over asking Mm-hmm. all cash like Dude. who does that who does that? And, so, and so like yeah and so like when you're looking at hiring people like you then if you want key talent you have to pay astronomical like your, your internal economies don't uh 
uh, don't net out, right? And so it becomes really hard for organizations to hire because they can't afford it. They have to raise monster rounds. And then like, it, it's just, it's becoming really difficult. And then uh, to that point, because the supply and demand's, you know, so imbalanced, then if you're really good, then you can ask for uh, huge sums of money, which is your God-given right. And yeah. go, go after it. It seems to be uh, one of the one of the biggest headwinds to scale right now. I mean, pretty much anyone's portfolio is the situation. But I mean, look, you have well over what a decade and a half experience doing all this. And yeah. uh, when we first met, you had just begun to just actually no, you had set up SaaS Growth Ventures, where you're now yep. a general partner. Yep, managing partner actually. Managing uh, partner, just, which only means that I I have to pay all the bills and deal with all the legal BS. <laughs> but that's yeah, the crappy so we, partner. You could have been the other one. <laughs> I'm the, I'm the whipping post, I guess. So, uh, yeah. so what gets you excited at SaaS Growth Ventures right now? Like, how do you intend to allocate capital in the coming year, two or three? Yeah, so I think we have to step, take a step back of why we're a special snowflake and different from other people. Right. And so why I'm excited for it is that we're applying what we've done. We're operators ourselves, right? You know, my partner's done four companies. I've done five uh, individually. Uh, and what we like to do is... Uh, we like to apply our operating uh, experience to our organizations, and that's our, our value. And I think looking back at you know how the ecology of venture has changed, um, you mentioned it very early on in this conversation, you have now platforms like AngelList and other things that have, I hate to use this word because I think it's been bastardized, but democratized uh, yeah. investing um, <laughs> to a lesser large degree because now you can be an angel investor and do a syndication. And get a bunch of your buddies to and and you know, do one-off investments, right? It uh, doesn't mean it takes away from some of the top-tier uh, VCs and what they do. But what we saw was that there was a surplus of capital out there, and how do we differentiate ourselves? And plus, how do we backstop our investments so that we have a definitive reasoning that they will be successful? And so what we did was we tested our thesis for a couple of years, um, where we actually go in and, and assist the company uh, and. Uh, capitalize their growth at a faster rate that they can do it currently. Um, and then from that, uh, we do carry on investments. So as I like to put into a, uh, you know, a baseball analogy, um, rather than trying to hit a home run or a grand stand like most funds, uh, we're trying to get on base 80 to 90% of the time, in which case, you know, we'll have a higher, higher scoring uh, batting average. Um, and so that's, that's where we, uh, that's where we come in. You know, we are very hands-on with the organizations. We are, probably the exact opposite of 500 startups yeah. <laughs> in terms of their mentality, but we're very deliberate in terms of the companies we work with and we have a great track record around it. And that's where I, I really get excited about what we're doing because we, you know, again, like, you know, the company uh, fake spot that we have mutual interest in, you meet such great talent and it's a journey. Like that you really do. And I know it's such a cliche. You really have to love the people that you're working with. Yeah. And that's why I love our premise and our thesis not because we came up with it and we're not unique in our in, in our thesis but we just meet really great people that i know it's not just going to be this business it's going to be their following businesses and other areas that we're going to collaborate on and you know it's it tickles the add right you know uh i love building stuff and so this is about as close to to that as i can get uh being on this side of the fence and being on the dark side of, of the startup world yeah. I guess. <laughs> but right. uh, you know we, we we're, we're, we're very uh, very uh, founder and uh, company friendly you know we, we think yeah. and, we, and i think that's the reason my founders like to work with us is because we think exactly like them because yeah. we're, we've been in their shoes so. well I, i've spoken to some of your founders and so far i can i can report honestly that not one of them has uh, complained of you so which is saying <laughs> saying a lot because when i get them cornered alone and i ask them it's like yo bro really what do you think of that dude i tend to hear some <laughs> shit um i will never recount it because i can't afford the lawsuit but i will say that that uh they all spoke very very highly of you brandon yeah. we have we have a little less than 10 minutes to go here i have two final questions i want to ask you um before we part ways number one what is the greatest investment you ever done and why uh, the one that I'm most excited about right now uh, is, I would say, connected analytics in Africa. That's my darling. And I think it goes back to not uh, – it really comes down to when you connect with somebody, you really connect with them. And I met Simeon, the founder, at 500. And I'll never forget, it was November uh, several years ago. He was free. He just got off a plane from Nigeria. 
freezing cold. It's just a, a rainy day in San Francisco, no big deal. But this guy looked like he was going to die. He had mittens, a scarf on, you know, beanie. He's asking <laughs> for hot tea. I thought, like, literally he was going to, like, be a popsicle. My wife even met him. He met us at a hotel because we were in town for uh, the holidays. And, uh, you know, we, we had a power session, you know, the next day at 500 and it was only supposed to be a 30 minute get to know you. And it ended up being like three, four hours and we were whiteboarding and we both leaned back and looked at the whiteboard. And I was like, you have a monster, monster opportunity here. I get it. And he just looked back with his hand on his mouth and just shook his head. He's like, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And it was that moment that I was like, I connected with him, but also I understood the business so well of what he was trying to achieve. And we've worked side yep. by side ever since. And I think that's the the big, the, the one that I think is going to, you know, yet to be seen, uh, but has the most legs and I'm most excited for it. But again, it, it's not just the return, it's the journey, you know, and I, I know it's so cliche, but it's, it's the journey around it. Um, and it's been fun because, you know, again, I love, I love building stuff and, and watching things evolve. So. Um, so that's one company that I, uh, I'm really stoked on. All right. Um, I'm going to give you a degree of freedom for the last question. Uh, tell me about the biggest bomb you invested in, uh, or, or you can tell me what's the one that got away. Uh, I'm not going to say the bomb. Well, there's been a couple bombs and I won't name <laughs> them, but what I, again, it comes back down to the human aspect. Right. Uh, when my part i'm three for three right now with my partner where we were backing these organizations and i told him uh too specifically i don't trust the founder there's too many things that are not lining up and there's yep. too many uh data points that are not in sync of what they're telling us versus what we're seeing and then also them telling a different story later on down the road uh, and so that those, I think it just comes down to the human aspect. And I think that's also a reason why I really feel a lot more comfortable with our thesis is because we have to work with them side by side. If you're a good, if you're a good CEO, you're good at selling and you're good at selling yourself in the company, but you could be yep. snake oil. right? And that's, right. I think what I really, I, I, I have, you know, maybe, uh, you know, PTSD from that, uh, aspect, uh, that I really, that's why I, I really love our thesis because you really get to do our hands-on due diligence. And when you're sitting in a trench with somebody, you really understand, um, uh, uh, you know, what, what makes a person make or break, right? Um, if yep. they can hold their stuff together, uh, which shit's going sideways, then, you know, that's, that's somebody I want to be in a trench with versus somebody that's going to collapse. I think the one thing that got away was, uh, not necessarily an investment, but opportunity, you know, all right. Hindsight 2020, I had a couple opportunities to join um, some pretty large companies early on, uh, and they did some pretty amazing things. But, you know, I think going down the path that I have, it's, you know, you can't say woulda, coulda, shoulda, because it's just lame to do. And It'll drive you um, nuts as a VC. Yeah. Right, but I think it's also like you take the data points that you have in front of you. Yeah. Uh, you make the decision, even if it's wrong, you learn from it and you reflect, and then you don't do it again. It's the same thing what I was just talking about, like the ones that, the bad investments. Are we getting uh, a name on the one that got away? No. Damn it. After yeah. recording? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> Hypothetically speaking, if I go in editing and put a voice filter over this entire thing and, and, and beep out your name, will you mention the names of the one that got away and the bomb? Uh, I can do that. Maybe, 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 maybe. No, the other ones, the ones that, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to uh, potentially join Slack in an early age, uh, early date. Um, you know, that's more from an operator standpoint, but... Uh, you're definitely not going to tell you the ones i'll definitely tell you off the record but uh it's not for uh, not for recording i'm not i'm not one for uh uh for for that type yeah. of uh, you know it's it's a small world yeah uh, i know I, trust I, me what, but, what, what, I guess what my point on the small world is things will eventually catch up to people you know i've already seen that in silicon yeah. valley to, to your point uh i know that i've been i've almost gotten engaged with a couple of parties and somebody through my network heard and they've reached out to me and said, hey, look, X, Y, Z, don't talk with this dude. This is the reason why. And that stuff follows you. And I know several people that I've worked with in the past that if I see a, colleague, a close colleague of mine, I would be, first thing I'm going to tell them is like, hey, look, you make your own decisions. You're a big boy, big girl. But uh, this is my experience. And don't take my word for it. Yeah. You know, I've checked it with other people. But 
uh, and it follows you. And so, you know, that's why I like to be a good operator. I'm not, you know, our fund is not a great fit for everybody and I'm not the great advisor for everybody. But when we do click, it's, it's, it's freaking amazing. And like, you know, with the fake spark guys and, you know, connect analytics and the other teams that uh, we're currently working with. Yeah. I mean, I'll take their call any day of the week, any time of the day, you know, that's, that's where, you know, you're in a good place and you're loving what you're doing. Um, so, that's where I want to. That's where I want to continue taking our, our platform and our fund uh, and working with amazing people. And that's you know, Cohen, going back to your original question of you know where do we see ourselves in five years from now? Hopefully, doing you know fund three, fund four, and continue to build and, and innovate and build meaningful things that are actually going to uh, make a difference uh, in the world. So awesome. We should probably yeah. throw in a disclosure here. I don't know whether it's required or not, but you're um, you're you're an advisor to most startup abstract, right? Uh, yeah, and I believe we are also uh, backing them as well. So, oh, small, small backing as well. Yeah, that is news to me. I didn't know that. I don't know why he didn't tell me that. See, if he was on the podcast, I can chew him out live on air. <laughs> well, you already did chew him out on the last one. Would you call him like a wet, uh, wet coleslaw? <laughs> I said, I said, I think I said he had like the charisma of coleslaw if it were human. <laughs> oh, that's great. I mean, you it's a compliment. Least... It's uh, I, I I would have at least leaned toward more towards a Caesar salad without the anchovies, but uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the funny thing is, some VC asked on on Twitter, it's like, you know, what's the worst a VC has ever asked you, like from a founder perspective? And Mo actually responded, like, um, he called me ugly and punched me, and that there was actually a bit of traction on that tweet with people thinking that it was some yeah. stranger of a VC who said that to him. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know things I can get away with, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. But oh man, it was hilarious. I think that somebody I'm sure was going to go right to TechCrunch saying like, "Oh, we have this massive scoop of some VC who assaulted a founder." Right, 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 right. And then yeah, it's they're always looking for some some type of scandal. Yeah. sometimes. man. You but know, yeah, in, in retrospect, that would have been good press, maybe. Right. Yeah, yeah could have drive some clicks at least a little bit. Of yeah, exactly, exactly. But you could have sold this Mo, podcast. Yeah, Mo was. I love your brother, dude. He's he's a really solid guy, and their, their team is is uh, they're young, but they're really ambitious. And I would say that of all the companies I work with, they really do execute. Anytime you give them feedback or do something to ask them to do something, they really they really know how to connect. Um, so I'm excited to see what they can uh, come up with uh, over the next year. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, Brandon, man, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for always taking the time. To to you. I know how crazy uh, busy you are. <laughs> you as well thanks for uh you're on the opposite end of the globe so i uh, appreciate it as well so oh it's uh, nothing i'm going i'm getting used to this yelling at a macbook thing <laughs> exactly